0: cognitive Revolution. My name is Cody Commerce and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Elizabeth Ricker. She has a new book out now called Smarter Tomorrow, how 15 minutes of neurohacking a day can help you work better, think faster, and get more done. And so I actually first learned of Elizabeth's existence a couple years ago. She has her undergraduate degree from brain and cognitive science at MIT, and then did a master's at mind-brain education at Harvard, and has been doing some really cool stuff ever since. I actually heard about her through a mutual contact of ours named Ogi Okus when she first sold this book. It was, you know, a couple years back, whatever it was, and he was like, this is definitely someone to watch out for. She's really interesting, really engaged, and has a lot of cool stuff to share, and has just, you know... Come up with the idea for this book and has you know sold it and got got a, a sweet deal for it. And I was like, all right, nice. Filed that away. And then what do you know? However long it was later, a year, a couple of years, here comes this book, uh, Smarter Tomorrow. It's a cool read. We we talk a lot about how she came to uh, Elizabeth's done so much cool stuff, and we you know how that has sort of formed the way she approached this book. And also the way she approaches the project of of self-improvement, you know, what she calls neurohacking. And I think there's a lot of really cool and maybe, you know, non-obvious stuff in this. One of the things that we talk at length about in the conversation is how even though we have a a culture of self-improvement and, you know, sort of constant fiddling with your process to try and make it better, one of the things that that culture overlooks is the individuality in each person's progress, uh, in each person's process. And uh, that sort of looks like, okay, well, here's you know, the strategy that worked for so-and-so. Here is what this one management guru says to do, and then you try that and, 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 and all that sort of thing. And it overlooks just how much personalization is required to come up with what works not just in general, but what works for you. And this is something that I think is actually a pretty deep and kind of easily missed point. And it's something that Elizabeth nails in this book. So we talk about her, her story, and then how that informed everything that she's put uh, for this book. We also talk about uh, some stuff that I'm working on. She suggests some uh, neuro hacks, which I may or may not uh, push back against and <laughs> say reasons why. Uh, in those particular cases, uh, they may or may not be what I choose to do. Uh, and so there's some give and take in, 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 in everything here. It was really fun to talk to her. She was someone I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, having a discussion with and I look forward to our continued correspondence in the future. So at any rate, if you want to connect with her, you can do so on Twitter. That's at E-L-I Ricker. And um, definitely check out her book, Smarter Tomorrow. It is out today. Um, And then if you want to connect with me, uh, the best way to do so is through my Substack newsletter. That's at codycommerce.substack.com. And I write about a whole wide range of things, some intellectual biography, some just basic intersection of psychology and life sort of stuff. And a lot of of my recent writing has been about um, strategies for applying to graduate school. This is my last year of graduate school, fingers crossed. And so I'm thinking a lot about, okay, how did I get here? What did, what did I learn through the process for someone who's interested in doing a similar kind of process? So I've written about how to apply to UK programs for American students, since it can be pretty um, uh, pretty confusing. And then my, my most recent post was 24 reasons not to go to graduate school. If you want to check all those out, you can do so at my Substack newsletter, codycommerce.substack.com. So at any rate, thank you so much for listening to Cognitive Revolution, and without any further ado, here is Elizabeth Ricker. The first thing I usually like to ask people is, uh, where do you grow up?
1: I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Not the one in the UK, but the one in the US.
0: Nice. Uh, and what, what did that look like? How long were you in Cambridge for? What did, uh, what did your family look like? That sort of stuff. What was, what was all that like?
1: Yeah, um, so I was born in Boston and I stayed, we were in Cambridge for a good chunk of my childhood. Um, I went to the same school from the time I was pre K through eighth grade. Um, and then my parents shipped me off to uh, boarding school because they didn't love me. No, I'm completely kidding. Um, <laughs>
0: it's because you're a New England family. That's why. They should
1: That's go a New England family. Board. That's just always what people assume, and um, I feel like I just have to say it because it's. I can't tell you the number of people who asked me uh, when I told them that I went to a boarding school. they were like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. Your parents just don't love you. Is that the case?" <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so Cambridge for the first, I don't know, 14 years. Did you like boarding um, school, though? I actually did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like people
0: like boarding school because it's basically like one perpetual sleepover with your, with your friends and everything.
1: Minus the sleep, but yeah, (laughs) um, it, it really, it kind of was, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, Exeter was a cool place because there were kids from all over the world. Um, they were incredibly intellectually curious. Um, there were people who were just talented at so many different things and, um, they're just, there was a chance to pursue things at a really high level that would be hard to get access to almost anywhere else as a teenager. Um, So we're really lucky. And I think the, the, the the sort of stereotype about places like that is that it's just sort of for rich privileged kids. And that certainly has been true historically. Um, But I think they've done a good job of actually trying to recruit people from a lot of different places. And so as a result, I actually think I got exposed to a much broader cross-section of people um, during that period of time that I um, honestly have in an academic environment. Um, eh, is that completely true? Yeah, it, it's, it really was one of the more diverse environments that I've been in. Um, I mean, there was a girl that I um, was brilliant, who was in my dorm, um, who grew up in an incredibly difficult situation with um, a neighborhood that was not safe. And um, I mean, anyway, you can go into details, but there were a lot of people who had absolutely amazing stories. So that was a a formative time, I guess, because I learned that um, you know it's it, it's simple to hear intellectually, but when you really are friends with people and go to um, go to class and hang out in dining hall and really become friends, you develop an understanding that uh, this world is incredibly complex, and people come from incredibly different places, and um, it's not a fair world um, and that if you care about that, then you should do something about it. Um, And I would say that that was one of the reasons why I actually got drawn into neuroscience because I felt like one of the ways that someone who is of an analytical kind of nerdy bent like myself can possibly help is if I can understand better how the brain works, then maybe I can help people to unlock more of their potential um, and do that in ways that can be more... um, honestly a little subversive (laughs) than the standard institutional approaches because, um, I'm kind of going off here, but, um, I think in education and in healthcare, and I talk about this a bit in the book too, um, there are approaches that tend to work well for sort of a, a one size person. They're, they're standardized, they're optimized for this kind of mythical average person. Um, and if you fall outside of that, range either because you come from a different background or because you're neurologically a little bit different or because you're you made different life choices or whatever it is there are a lot of institutions that don't work for you and are not built for you and you'll get left out and so that was one of i think ironically in a really um (laughs) privileged environment like exeter i think that was one of my wake-up calls was that um if i was going to do anything useful with my life it would probably it should be um uh, as a way of trying to figure out how to use science or technology to um, provide opportunities so that people can actually be themselves in a world that tends to not exactly try to snuff that out actively, but just by design often does.
0: Yeah, I love that. So before we hop into the, the neuroscience stuff, I, I kind of have a question for you about this time of life. And so, one thing that stands out about you as as a author and by extension as a person from reading your both your your book and your, and your biographical material is that you are driven by a deep interest in things and when that yes. interest is present then you're all in and when yes. that interest wanes it's fucking gone there's 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 there's, there's nothing true. to go off of and it's it's Um, which I love I definitely resonate with that in in incredibly
1: erratic. um, Yeah, I mean my even with sports My parents used to joke that they had no idea who was going to show up on court any particular day for my sport Because it was just like I might have just been like peace guys I'm off like daydreaming about something (laughs) who the hell knows what she's up to
0: and so my my question is What was the first thing that you were really profoundly interested in?
1: Hmm Um, That's a fantastic question, and it's actually a really easy answer. It's horses. Um, I was just absolutely besotted with horses. I I could not um, have been more in love with horses as a creature. Um, Really, you name it, anything related to horses, I was into it. So I was the kid that loves around a horse textbook um, with her everywhere. And I had... um, I begged my parents to let me go um take lessons and take care of horses and learn how to train horses and train other riders and i spent my summers mucking out manure in the stables and getting thrown off of horses Um, yeah and i think it's you know it's a funny thing it doesn't seem terribly related to everything else that i did but the parallels that i i saw as a kid with life um were actually really profound and um, probably because I read all those horse te- textbooks, I learned a lot about how to learn. Because no one else I knew was really into horses to the mildly disturbing degree that I was, um, and so I was. I had to be sort of self-taught. Um, and also, you know, riding is a is a weird activity um, in the sense that it's uh, it's it can be quite expensive. And my family was, you know, they tried hard to um, you know help me out with that as much as they could, but you we weren't we weren't like ridiculously wealthy so i had to you know where other other kids who are at my level might be um able to go get you know riding lessons with uh with some fancy coach uh you know five times a week i would have maybe one day a week that i could go do that but i would visualize at night every every night um and run through in my head exactly what that lesson would look like so that when i got on the horse on you know, Friday uh, Saturday afternoon, um, I was ready, and I had I had essentially been training all week because I had been thinking about it and planning it and um, imagining exactly what I would do. And so my coaches even commented that it was as if I'd been riding a lot longer than I actually had. So I think um, horses were amazing because you also you learn about the biology and the archaeology, and I mean when you were in, as into them as I was, <laughs> you learn about a lot of things. So I think that's one of the things that. Is fun for little kids. Is um, if you can really fan whatever flame it is that they're excited about. It honestly doesn't matter if you're passionate about it. Um, don't judge. You know, just dig in and enjoy and and uh, let the let the curiosity drive you. And ironically, it actually probably brought me into science because um, I don't know if Ogie might have told you this, but there's a funny thing that happened when I was 11. Um, I was a very mediocre student up until that point. I mean. Aggressively so, Um, like didn't hand in homework, just, you know, was drawing in class very obviously, Um, sometimes directly rude to the teacher. I mean, I was a bit of a, my childhood nickname was The Beast. Um, And I was also very mischievous, (laughs) like constantly giving my family a hard time. I was a handful. Um, But my dad, uh, my dad actually had this funny conversation with me when I was 11, And I told him about how I wanted to build talking horses, Um, which sounds odd, right? But I think he detected some glimmer of scientific curiosity in me. And he said, hey, you know, you could. There's this new thing called bioengineering. Um, It's maybe not so crazy. Um, You could possibly do that. And I was like, oh, interesting. Go on. So we ended up having this long conversation about bioengineering. And then he said, and if you really want to pursue this topic um you could study it at MIT um and maybe your mom and I could sweeten the deal to really motivate you to do this and maybe we'll get you a horse <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh so that that's it that's how you found the motivation for that yeah all right. and
1: then i was like oh say what <laughs> yeah
0: now I'm, now i'm listening now homework i'm, really, gets I'm listening
1: now yeah so then all of a sudden everything was on board and all all systems were firing. So I went from, you know, barely uh, showing up to class mentally to, I guess, within a couple of years, I was accepted to all of these uh, fancy private schools and, you know, had gotten very good grades and done all the things that a, a good little student is supposed to have been doing. But, I wasn't doing it for the same reasons it wasn't because I was like some nice law-abiding little kid I was just like gotta get me that horse <laughs>
0: so. yeah that, that's uh definitely hit on something there then that's that's funny <laughs> I, I also feel like there's a great life metaphor in here of of getting thrown off the horse and and still loving it so much and getting back back on there and that's oh yeah i feel like I that's mean, probably I, uh, a, a microcosm of every activity uh that any like person who's achieved some of the success has gone through so i, I definitely completely. can see how that is
1: yeah i mean i, I think you can't really um if you want to try to do something hard and you're not comfortable with the notion that you're going to fall on your butt more times than you can even remember then um you should really get used to falling first before you start trying to
0: do something hard. So, so you've got this interest in neuroscience, budding interest in neuroscience, budding interest in bioengineering, um, the latent interest in learning how to learn all this talking, sort of horses,
1: of also. talking, horses, talking horses,
0: which is really only, uh, <laughs> one, one degree of separation away from talking robots, which is sure, for MIT. Sure. Uh, so you've got these brain and cognitive sciences sort of, sort of interest. Is there a moment when it clicks for you and be like, oh, this is, this is sort of like the core of what's interesting for me here. And it starts to take off in, in a little bit more concrete, uh, a little bit more concrete way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I guess it was, um, it was also probably in high school. Um, I was reading this AP bio textbook and I came across this section on neuroscience that I hadn't really heard of neuroscience as a discipline. Um, but they're talking about the brain, and then I remember seeing this panel on um, this guy Susumu Tonegawa, who had won the Nobel Prize um, like a few years back, and he was talking about some new research directions that he was taking, looking at memory um, specifically in the hippocampus. And I remember just thinking, "Wow!" Because they were they were engineering um, ways of doing this that were just completely sounded like science fiction. I was also a fantasy and sci-fi fan, so that was. Um, very much my alley. Um,
0: I think that's a, an, an admissions requirement at MIT. It might be,
1: yeah. I, I'm not going to lie. When I found out that MIT had the largest science fiction and fantasy library, um, I think a private library in the world, I was like, all right, I'm in. I got to go to this place. I mean, if they'll let me, I want to come. Um, so, yeah, so I think it was when I looked at that um, textbook in high school that really. Uh, Ranks some bells for me. And then the other thing was that I managed to talk my way into a neuroscience lab as a high school student, um, which was very hard. I got a lot of non-responses over email, but that was a summer internship. And um, it was a phenomenally brilliant, kind, wonderful um, professor at MIT. Um, and I think her, the fact that she ultimately um, ended up writing me a recommendation for college probably helped a lot. Um, but I working in that lab sort of showed me what professional science actually looks like and showed me that it's really different than how it's depicted, at least at that time, how, how science was depicted on TV. Um, and I saw that it was really this delightful, um, challenging investigation of people who were just driven by curiosity and were essentially just working really hard to try to pursue these, what seemed like very glorious ideals um, of trying to understand the, the world um, in very physical ways. So I thought it was just so cool. Um, and it was a place where it was okay for me to ask just question upon question upon question. And other people were doing the same thing and I wasn't being shushed. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I liked the I liked the environment in the lab. Um, and I thought, okay, I don't know if I wanna be a lab scientist, but I definitely wanna study this stuff. This is just extremely cool and this is the way to do it. Yeah.
0: Um, so one, one question that I, uh, want to ask i think might figure in around this point is is what are three books that you feel like have most impacted you um maybe from around this period or, or even more recently
1: yeah um well i didn't come across on intelligence until later so i can't list that one for this period of time um but i think probably for me this isn't really about my development as a scientist this is more uh, development just as a human um I think, especially as a kid, because my motivation levels were so uneven, um, I hit kind of like a, an early existential crisis when I was like thirteen or so, um, and probably one when I was ten when my grandmother died. And so, I think dealing with those kinds of experiences and asking yourself, you know, what what is the point and why am I here, and um, having the courage to kind of look deeply at those kinds of questions is very uncomfortable if you don't have any guidance and you don't have any kind of philosophical bearing upon which to, to, to gird that line of questioning. So one, a couple of books that I actually found very, um, helpful during those periods of time were within the humanistic, um, psychology movement, which kind of like a little philosophically aligned with the positive psychology movement that, that is now popular, but also a bit different. Um, so Viktor Frankl, a lot of people have heard of Man's Search for Meaning. That was a very helpful book for me. Um, the, the Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, also a humanistic um, psychologist, that was also helpful. So that was sort of a way of thinking about like what is the point? You know, how, how, do you, how do we motivate ourselves as human beings in a world where there's a lot of things that are not great, that people are often not treated well, um, things are often not unfair, or, or, uh, things are often unfair. Um, and how do you keep going? Like how do you, how do you take joy? In, in daily life. So I think that was having those as um, part of my, like, I don't know, intellectual, spiritual toolkit was very helpful proceeding. Um, but I think other other things were just, I mean, a ton of sci-fi and fantasy, right? Like Terry Pratchett, hilarious guy. I mean, he, he writes footnotes on his footnotes. Um, um, and then in terms of books later that were very helpful. I can just keep going because there's just so many wonderful books. But, um, when I later tried to figure out how to write uh, a nonfiction general audience science book, um, that would be helpful to people that would have the, the purpose of you use this book kind of as a guidebook to teach yourself how to, um, you know, become a neurohacker. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, um, you know, the, the reason why I wrote this book was I wanted to write something that would be really helpful to people. I didn't know very many books that were like that. Um, I knew great science books and I knew self-help books, which I didn't. I had sort of mixed feelings about. Um, there weren't very many books that stitched the two together. There's a couple that I did come across. Um, the How of ha- the How of Happiness by Sonia Dubomirsky. Jube- I think I'm probably butchering her name. Um, it's not super well known, but it's a great example of that category. Um, And The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal um, is also a very good example in that category. And then um, Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit um, isn't really as practical, you know, these are the five things you need to do to get better at habit change. Um, It's a little more conceptual, but I thought he did a phenomenal job of writing to a general audience and getting people excited about the topic at least. So those would be some of the main ones that I would Put in my toolkit. Um, but yeah, it's, there's so, I mean, I, I loved your question and I was just sort of staring at the page when you were like, pick three books that impacted your life. Cause honestly, I mean, I read a lot and, um, it's really hard to pick just three.
0: It's, it's a totally, uh, arbitrary selection <laughs> at, at, at that point. That's, that's kind of the, uh... The, the, that's the point, right? It's kind of the liberation of the question, uh, yeah. I, I, I feel like, sometimes. Because, like, if you name every book, then that's the exact <laughs> but if You just pick the three. Well, of course, it's it's totally inadequate for the... right, right, anyway, that. Right, right, right. That's a really cool selection. Some of them um, uh, I'm definitely going to have to look into because I, I haven't cool. heard of them. Yeah. I think uh Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meeting is the number one chosen uh response to that on for the people that I talk to. It's either that oh, really? or Go to Lesher Bach. Um, oh okay yeah those G-E-B. are those yeah. are uh, yeah it's either man's from for meaning or geb that's that's yeah. that's almost guaranteed
1: yeah i mean you're just good anymore. what are you gonna do yeah. i mean <laughs> can't fight with great
0: yeah okay so i there's a couple more questions i want to ask you about this sort of period before we get into the book which i'm also super excited to talk about sure. um but i'm I'm curious because. You know, so when you finish MIT or maybe when you finish Harvard, feel free to jump to, uh, you know, like whatever whatever stage is most appropriate to answer this question. But you clearly have gone on to do so many different things and you have so much ambition in the best way possible. Like, what did you think you were going to do or what did you want to do? What did that look like? What was the game plan when you were sort of fresh out of undergraduate? Like, this is sort of the course that I'm. Uh, Plotting, like what did that? What did that look like for you?
1: Yeah. What was the What was the evil plan? What was the yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. What was What was the, <laughs> the evil plan to take over the world? And how far are you along in it so far?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, great question. So I think every Every uh, Every undergraduate should have an evil plan. Um, pr- ideally, they should also have a, a small, uh, semi hairless dog as a sidekick um, to really accompany that plan. And they should have a pension for putting their pinky in their mouth. Um, so yeah, what was the evil plan? I think it was it was a couple of things. Um, I realized after undergrad, I'd worked in a lot of labs. Um, I worked in neuroscience labs. I worked I worked in cognitive science labs. I worked at the media lab in educational technology. Actually, at the 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 group that invented Scratch, um, and that was wonderful. But I kept running up against this problem that I wanted to do a PhD. I wanted to um, go deep in that direction but i couldn't find some i couldn't find a group that i felt comfortable with both the methods and the question i either felt like there were groups that were pursuing phenomenally important questions but i just didn't like the methods very much um or it was the opposite i thought the methods were elegant but the question was not that interesting um and so uh, I could go into more detail on that if you want, but I think the, the the evil plan ended up being that I didn't think I was gonna end up making a career as a research scientist because the state of neuroscience and kind of the relevant fields that I would have been interested in um, <clears throat> was just it, the incentives were not aligned for to, to kind of do the type of, the type of work that I wanted. Jeff Hawkins actually talks about this a lot of, you know, his experience with going to grad school and discovering that he just can't really study what he wants to study um just given how (laughs) how funding structures worked and the types of questions that actually got funding Um, so i discovered that thankfully uh during undergrad and i had some kind professors who were like you know this is a great set of questions and it's just not going to work in academia and so i was like all right cool thanks for telling me so i thought startups could be interesting and i I mentioned in my book i went to i you know randomly went to school with some people who ended up being very successful entrepreneurs um And so I I, I probably probably erroneously thought that startups would be a more likely success than they actually typically are. Um, So when you go to high school with Mark Zuckerberg and then college with Drew Houston of Dropbox and various other people who start really successful companies, um, you get this false notion that, oh, anyone can start a startup.
0: if that dipshit can do it. Then, but so yeah, cannot.
1: exactly. I mean,
0: <laughs>
1: well, I don't know about that dipshit.
0: I mean, they both were very. <laughs> that wasn't very... <laughs> that wasn't your exact exact thought process. There is
1: a certain there. amount of like familiarity breeds not necessarily contempt, but um uh ne- not necessarily appreciating as much it, as you probably bring Someone
0: have. off the pedestal when you know them on a.
1: It on does. A it definitely brings them off the pedestal to some degree, and um I mean look, in both of those cases, both those guys were clearly brilliant and, um, you know, oh, yeah. Im- impressive people, but there, there's still, it's like, you know, I saw you when you were 15, I saw, or I saw you when you were 17 or whatever. So it's like, yeah, anyone could do that. Um, so I think that, you know, the success rate of startups is not what the, what those cases would make you believe. Um, so anyway, I did end up going into startups instead of into academia and, um, I learned a ton through that, and I mostly did startups that were uh, had kind of were commercializing technology or science that had come out of labs because um, I still wanted to stay in touch with with the science. Um, but I think you know, again, going back to your earlier question, what is what was the evil or grand plan? Um, I had an experience when I was eight years old that I felt like I had a promise to fulfill, um, and that experience was that I didn't learn to read um, at sort of the normal time. Um, and I felt like I did, I did end up, um, learning to read obviously. Um, but it was a very, uh, difficult experience. And I felt like the, the fact that I was able to do it and to ultimately do quite well was to some degree, uh, pure chance because, uh, yeah, the, the amount that I was behind academically statistically would not have been, um, uh, sort of consistent with even necessarily graduating from high school. Um, So there are a lot of little Elizabeths running around in the world who didn't get a reading tutor at the age that I did um, and did not get lucky in that way. And so I guess there was a certain amount of guilt that I carried forward. And so I think my evil plan really consisted of I need to go back and figure out a way to help all the to to kind of make up for the fact that I got helped um, and try to send out tools for the people who didn't. Um, and it's not just reading. It's not just, you know, whatever. You talked about my erratic <laughs> attention and motivation. And I think that was partially just, um, you know, my, my, um, my experience is that there are a lot of people who struggle with attention and um, more generally. And uh, some of that is anxiety. There's many, many reasons why people can have that. Um, for me, I think it often was that. Um, and so one of my big goals was how can I either develop technology myself, um, be it in a lab or in a commercial, um, setting with startups, um, or in, you know, ultimately the case that it ended up being, which was, I'm going to go around and try to find all the different instances where people are pretty close to doing this. And I'll write them up in a book and share that with people. But whatever path, whatever medium it ends up being, I need to solve this question of how can a given person um, decide, hey, I really want to be able to learn. I really want to be able to live the life that I think I should be able to live, but I just don't have the tools. How do I do that? And so I want I want this book. And I, I, you know, I didn't know that I was going to write a book at that point in college, but I wanted to have something, some product that I could send out into the world that would basically be a lifeline or a a raft for people to kind of, um, find their way, I guess, to an Island. Where am I going with this metaphor? But they, they want to, um, that, that tool should be there for people so that they can build the life that they, that they want. Yes, yeah, um, so, and I, I knew it would be either a startup or a book um because i loved writing that was the other thing so i wasn't yeah. sure if it was going to be um a product or or a book it was going to be one of the two
0: and so in a way uh miss lecto who you talk about in the book yes yeah. this, this tutor who, who yeah who helped you in during this crucial time and gave you this yes yeah. she was kind of the og neuro hacker for you she gave you it was. Uh, was she absolutely was she was intervention zero <laughs> and Part of your process of, of bringing together this this book and, and you trying to pay that that sort of thing forward is is appreciating that uh, how that took you from where you were to where you could be and exactly. wanting to to bring that that's such a lovely thing that's that's so that's so cool. Uh, so yeah. when did yeah. when did it actually become okay? So we've got this sense that this is the space of problems that I want to work in this this idea of. Um, finding ways for just people in the general population, not even people with clinical issues or anything like that, but just for any person uh, to try and get more in touch with with their their potential as, as a human being. When did the actual concrete object of the book start to t- shape place? And what did you think it was going to be when you started in on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think there's two parts to it. One is what did I think it was going to be when I started on it. And the answer is very different <laughs> than how it ended up. Um, but then the other part is where did I actually get, I think the correct uh, direction um, and when did that happen? And how did I figure out how to put the pieces together uh, in the in the form that they ended up resulting in? So I'll answer the first one. Um, when I first started, I felt like there was a hole in, um, both the research literature in neuroscience and in the application into education, um, which was um, enabling mathematical performance. So I actually started off by interviewing professors um, primarily all over the world. In fact, I actually traveled to Oxford specifically to do this. Um, And I I was curious about what tools existed to help people who struggle with math and who struggle with numbers. The reason why I chose that was that at least sort of from what I had seen at that point in life, and again, I was an undergrad, I was just recently graduated um, from MIT, so I was just surrounded by people who lived, breathed, and, you know, defined themselves by a science and technology. It seemed like the world was headed um, kind of irrevocably in this direction of, if you, you know, of technology, essentially. So if you didn't have mathematical, technological and scientific literacy, I was very afraid that you'd be left behind. And having looked at a lot of the numbers, even just from standardized test scores uh, across different countries, and of having worked in a a few different communities with trying to do education outreach, it was just really clear to me that there was a big gap between where people needed to be with basic math skills and comfort level um, and where they were. And I was worried about that, and I thought there was a chance that neuroscience research and technology could help with that, and if I could write a book that showed where we were on that cutting edge, maybe I could inspire more people to to solve that problem. Um, I started to work on it, and I gave it a few months, and honestly, just the research wasn't there. Um, The the tools and the the story, it just didn't work. So I ended up abandoning that angle. And I ended up sort of taking a totally different tack, weirdly, because I read a business book um, that I thought had the right tone for what could potentially um, inspire a lot of people. And that business book was The 4-Hour Workweek. I don't know if you've read that. Yeah, Tim Ferriss. Um, And it doesn't seem very related, but um, on his blog, he talked a lot about self-experimentation. And... um, That I thought was fascinating because it seemed like he'd solved one of the primary problems that exists in neuroscience that I kept running up against when I'd worked in various labs, which is that we have this obsession or at at that time, I think things have actually gotten better since then. But at that time we had this obsession with group-based results. So you keep, you keep, um, reporting on the average results for, it could be an intervention, it could be a clinical thing, it could even be just trying to understand some basic science about how something in your brain works. Um, And when in truth, when you look at the raw data, individual differences are so profound that um, it it makes you completely disbelieve the findings of whole swaths of research. And so really then the, um, the answer, and now this is getting into the second part of your question, which is what gave me the ultimate direction that I, I think allowed the book to take its current form. Um, sort of the, the solution to this problem of, uh, of all brains being different and of wanting to find solutions that actually work well for people is actually self-experimentation. It's a, it's a very elegant and simple solution to an incredibly hard, almost intractable problem that institutionally is set up to not be solved. Um, and so that, Weirdly enough, that business book and then stumbling upon his blog gave me this idea of, hey, if we take all of the sort of standard ideas that I've been trained in uh, since I was a teenager in neuroscience, um, and then we take some of the tools and, you know, I had a lot of interest in devices and in in kind of the the more exotic ways to enhance mental performance. Um, If we take all that, but we infuse it with this self-experimentation model What if I can I can write a book where I teach people how to do that, um, where they they really become neuroscientists of themselves. Then I think we can actually get the personalization that would be necessary in order to. um, In order to actually enhance people's mental performance and people could do it themselves. Um, And I thought what Tim Ferriss did very well was he showed that you can um, make something exciting. And he he's very good at sort of polarizing people. And getting them to sort of argue with each other so they pay attention, um, and that that allows the the proper attention to be paid to a topic that um, otherwise could be kind of boring, right? Um, and and so if you if you construct something that's a bit of a a bit of a scene or a bit of a spectacle, um, and is weird then you can capture people's attention. And that I think is part of the, the point of having self-experimentation be at the center of, um, of neurohacking, even though my reason for doing it is really more that I think it solves a very important technical problem. So my reason is kind of nerdy, um, but I think the reason why other people are gonna be drawn to it is probably more of that spectacle aspect.
0: That, that's interesting, yeah. So uh, you talk about self-experimentation early in the book. And yeah, that's interesting that when, you, when you frame it like this, because you're sort of saying like, okay, well, we all know science and science is great, uh, but there's this problem, this sort of institutional level problem just with the, the sort of sociology of how science works is exactly. that we can't sit there and do the neuroscience of an individual. Because uh, it's difficult to do. There's too many individuals. And in order to really get into that individual differences is tough. That's something we're getting better at in neuroscience. Yes. For example, yes, sure. um, one of the early guests I have on the show is a, a researcher at University of Washington named Chantel Pratt, who just uh, finished uh, writing her, her book that's gonna be out soon. That's on the neuroscience of individual differences. Yay, that's gonna be super fun. Totally. Oh aside.
1: wonderful. Wait, let me uh, I wanna look this up. This 100%. is so exciting.
0: Yeah, I think what, I think what is your lesson? Uh Pratt. P R A T. Um, oh great! Yeah,
1: send me the link after. I definitely want to read your
0: book. One hundred percent. Everyone should look it up. Um, it's going to be great. Excited to talk to her about it. Um, and, but the point is, look. Uh, in order to figure out you, dear reader, who uh, who you are and how you work and that sort of stuff, science is not set up to answer that 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 question. Yeah. And yeah. so you're saying, until twenty fifty, when we have personalized scientific experimentation batteries that we can actually go through and do all the stuff on. The most effective way to do this is to essentially approximate the scientific process yourself uh, and say, okay, here's, um, you know, different ways of doing things, how do I figure out what works well for me? There's no, there's two different questions. What works well in general on average for okay. people and that may or may not be the same answer as whether or not works, works for you. And so that's like the deep kind of underlying principle of how you approach this problem, it seems like.
1: Right. And I would, I would tweak a couple of things. I mean, yes, yes, yes. And yes,
0: you are the neurohacking author here. Please correct my, correct. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, No, I mean, I think you're totally on, you're, you're totally on the right track with most of that. Um, There, there are a couple of things where I would tweak it. So one would be that um, I don't think we have to wait until 2050 to get the, the types of batteries that you're talking about. Um, In fact, although I, did have to build a lot of the things that I use in my own neurohacking. Um, I'm going to be providing a lot of those tools to people um, over time. So I like already have a waiting list, for instance, for um, some of the toolkits. And I've, I already have started working with um, small groups of people uh, to, to test out some of those and see how uh, accessible and usable they are. Because it's one thing if someone has an engineering or science background and they're willing to root around in data, but it's quite another if you just are a regular person living your life and you want, uh, you know, a, a set of, you know, you, you want a dashboard that can tell you where you're at mentally on any given day and tell you these are some things that you should try to do um, based on the data. So I think we're, we're close. Um, we're a lot closer than most people realize. And actually, um, you don't have to be perfect with this to get a lot of value out of it. And so what I ultimately am trying to get people to do with the book, and also with with these tools, is to realize that you can start self-tracking and start becoming aware of the components of your cognition um, so that you can then take very specific action. So to get concrete, um, let's say, actually, I can take today as an example. I track a lot of things constantly. So I track my sleep, I track my HRV, which is uh, heart rate variability. I check my, um, my baseline heart rate. Um, I track my mood, I track uh, various aspects of my cognition. This morning I woke up and I saw that some of my measures were not looking very good. <laughs> um, I didn't sleep very well, I didn't sleep enough. I got woken up a bunch of times. Um, and so this morning I was like, okay, well this is useful information. Um, what can I do? So I did um, a series of breathing exercises that didn't take very long. It was seven minutes. Um, I chose a breakfast somewhat strategically to try to realign um, what was going on with my GI system. Um, I did some physical exercises that didn't take very long. So the point is I needed that information when I first woke up. That, hey Elizabeth, you're not doing super well this morning. You need to do something quickly. Um, that level of self-awareness is just not possible unless you have some of these devices tracking you, say, while you're asleep. Um, so that's why that's where I think having lived in both worlds, both the neuroscience world and the sort of tech world, has been really helpful for me because it's shown me that you need to ask the right questions, but you also need to use the right methods for answering those. Otherwise, you won't really come up with a useful solution. Um, and so, yeah, I guess don't wait to 2015, I'm mean, sorry, 2050, like we are, we're much closer than, than people realize. And like, I, this is not an exaggeration. I, I genuinely believe that everyone on earth can become a neurohacker. I mean, all humans, we don't communicate well enough with animals yet to ask them to become neurohackers. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I have a, um, I, I have a, a kiddo who uh, is just over one years old and he will be a neurohacker very, very soon. So. Um, I'm really, excited I to read the book uh,
0: that, that talks about your neurohacking experimentation on or with uh, with him <laughs> as you in, in your acknowledgments uh, are, are sort of uh, agnostic. As to whether uh, the experiment is going to be uh, uh, on or with the nature of consent there. We'll, yeah, exactly. We'll the consent is out. always I, important. That'll, that'll be the, the subtext of the... Uh, of the... <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, we've already started running some experiments on him, but <laughs> only ones where I feel like he would have consented. So...
0: I've I've got a few more I've got plenty more questions about neurohacking but we're at our uh, allotted time here so I wonder okay. if uh, how many more questions you have time for or you know what um, you, I'm you happy to, to I'm happy
1: to go over it's fine we'll,
0: we'll do a couple more minutes then uh, all right so let's That's technical
1: difficulties in the beginning so let's only fair.
0: let's talk specific neurohacks and specific experiments that you've tried. So so one thing I'm curious to know is if, if you had to choose one single neuro hack from everything you've tried and just be like, this is the one I'm going to keep and now everything else is dropped off, what, what would that be for you?
1: Mm, that's a great question. I, I want to unpack it a little bit though, because I think there's an assumption that a lot of people would have if they heard just that question. Love it. Um, and the assumption is that whatever's best for Elizabeth is what I should use. And that's just not true. Um, so it's, it's not a disclaimer or like a silly caveat to say, oh, you know, your mileage may vary or it's different for everybody. It is really different for everybody. I mean, even the same person's brain, if you look at connectomics, um, if you look, look at sort of the brain wiring over time, the exact same person's brain wiring changes, uh, as much as 13%. Uh, and that was a, a recent study that, that came out. And there's a lot of data that even shows that over the course of a single day, a person's um, level of mental performance uh, across various axes change a lot. So the answer is it depends. <laughs> um, so it's really hard to pick one. But all right, I know that's an unsatisfying answer. I'll give you what you want, even though I don't fully agree with it. Um, <laughs> it would it would honestly be for me. Um, it would be a toss up between two things. So my personal bottleneck um that i that i often sort of conquer and then it pops up again later on is um attention and that is that i can get distracted and i daydream and um, that's just sort of part of who i am probably um, so I'll, I'll probably be neuro hacking on that for like the rest of my life um, but as a result um high intensity sports and really intense, like sweat dripping off of you type exercise is what's needed for me to get myself back into the place that I need to be. And that's why I've always been an athlete in high school and in college. I was also a competitive athlete. So for me, um, later when I got injured, um, Bikram yoga. So just getting incredibly hot and sweaty and like just brutally, um, physically, um, uh, drained. Is is oddly a very, very effective neurohack for me. It is not the right neurohack for everyone. There are people for whom that kind of intensity is absolute hell. Um, so that's again why I would say for me that is critical and I need to keep doing that throughout my life. Um, the other one that I would say is like a bit more of a device um, rather than kind of a lifestyle thing is neurofeedback. Um, and that's something that I talk about a bit in the book. Um, but it was really profound for me personally when I worked with clinicians both in Boston and in San Francisco um, and I went and I saw my brain wave patterns before and after treatment and they had actually quite visibly changed the ratio between um, say the theta and beta waves had had altered um, quite significantly and that lasted even after I stopped doing the training. Um, That was quite profound and there were a lot of beneficial side effects of that, both in cognition and in mood. Um, And then using at-home neurofeedback devices that are of high quality. Like, for instance, there's a wonderful Canadian company that makes this um, headset called the Muse, um, which I've used for many years. I use it in research as well. Um, So that's another neurohack that I personally like. But again, big disclaimer, (laughs) which is that what works well for me is almost certainly not going to work well for everyone else just because we are all so wonderfully different from each other so it is just really this it's a it's a delightful curiosity driven journey that you you got to just start you got to see where you're at you got to understand what your bottlenecks are um i mean for me just to take it as an example there there's a friend of our there's a a couple who's a friend of um, my husband's and my and um when they read the book um they were really fascinated by the section on creativity and for both of them they felt that creativity was their bottleneck for me, that's never been my problem. Um, so I don't really do any of those hacks. But for, for them- It's
0: correlated with the daydreaming thing.
1: Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> um, I mean, I just take that stuff for granted. Honestly, my creativity has been more of a, a, a problem for me than it feels like it's been a help. Um, but for them, they have no issue with attention. They they struggle more with creativity. So that's, in other words, you, you, you come at these things from wherever you, um, whatever it is that you personally are trying to work on, and then you customize your path. Um, And that's, there is no one right intervention. There's no one size fits all solution. I really don't, I don't, I think that a lot of the sort of self-help gurus that are out there that try to prescribe that are doing people a tremendous disservice. Um, And that's why I think it's so, so important for the sort of practical applied people to work very closely with the scientist because with scientists, because um, the science really clearly shows you that. Neurological diversity is is real, and you have to respect that.
0: Um, there's something radical kind of about your about your thesis here here and mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, it I, is. Like, <laughs> it it it, it, it I, I think it is. Like it's, it's it's maybe a, um, yeah. Like it it kind of sounds like okay. Like you know maybe like self like that makes sense. But then when you actually uh, think about the experience. Like, we don't really prescribe this culturally. We say, like, yes, okay, exactly. what are the best ways to do X? Here is what, you know, your buddy Mark Zuckerberg did. Here is, you know, <laughs> what your most prolific uh, business author Adam Grant did. Do right, those things. Right. Apply those yeah. to, your, to yourself. And you're, and that's you're fundamentally wrong. That is no, absolutely you, you wrong. You absolutely can't do that. Um, yeah. Those things should be on the table. But you have sure. to put them on the table next to whatever other possibilities there are. And also with uh, as deep a knowledge as possible of yourself. And uh, again, you know, like the things that you're talking about, your bottlenecks, what you what you uh, sort of naturally have going for you, what you naturally have issues with, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's exactly. uh, it's really big. Uh, so and gonna, I think yeah.
1: to, add, yeah, to add one other thing to that too, I um, there's a book that came out a long time ago called The Art of Learning. And it's by Josh Waitzkin, who was formerly um a a chess kind of who's known as sort of a chess prodigy and then he switched over into martial arts and then he became a world champion there and he talks about the the progression sort of from um sort of levels and layers of of learning and what you need to do at each stage and i think that um as a culture we we have this really unhealthy attitude towards excellence which is um not at all steeped in the mindset of someone who um, becomes incrementally better at things. So for me, I, um, I ended up actually being, you know, nationally ranked in squash, which is this racket sport, a very intense, sweaty racket sport where you run and, and sprint a lot, um, which was great for my attentional difficulties because <laughs> it was forced me to do that a lot. But what I learned with that, and now when I teach um, squash to, to students, is what you need at every level of your game is completely different than what you needed at the previous level. So the way that I instruct a beginner versus the way that I instruct an intermediate player versus the way I instruct someone who is really pretty far along in their game is totally different. And the same person who's going from beginner to intermediate to more advanced is not a fundamentally different person, but they need different things at different times. And we're not, we're not all in pursuit of uh, excellence in some nerdy sport like squash, but what we are all in pursuit of, the, I think, is better versions of ourselves. And so, what you need today to be um, to to kind of bring out the best of you is almost certainly this is not an exaggeration is almost certainly a different thing than what you will need next year and if you're not dynamic in this approach and you try to prescribe this one size fits all thing and think oh if i'm not like adam grant or if i'm not like i'm not doing the same things as mark zuckerberg that i like i won't succeed in fact that's just totally wrong if you keep trying to do those things that those people are doing after having attempted and you know struggled and failed often privately <laughs> on their own for many years um, they tried many different things throughout the years, I'm, I'm sure. And if you don't try many different things, you will never get there. So you have to try different things. You have, to, you have to personalize and customize your path and realize that it is okay to be different. I mean, I know that sounds really cheesy, but we are actually all different. So if you refuse to acknowledge that, you're just going to be shooting yourself in the foot.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's another really just big, yeah, absolutely hits the nail on the head sort of thing there. Um, yeah, really, really.
1: <laughs> anyway, there, there are a lot of fun neuro hacks that you can do regardless. So you don't have to get super, super, uh, super deep and heavy on this stuff, but there, there are some fun philosophical knots to work through if you think about it.
0: No, absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, it's, it's actually a topic that I think a lot about in my own, my own interest and in that sort of stuff. But I think, I think, uh, I, I don't know that I have anything, uh, you've done a great job of summarizing it. So I think I'm just going to let what you say stand on its own. I did <laughs> want to return to one thing, though, which is that I know you were nationally ranked in, in squash, and then you um, also played as a varsity athlete in college. Is it also true that you were class president at MIT?
1: Yeah, that oh is Oh, my true.
0: God. That's so cool. <laughs> Queen of the I, I, had
1: a, I had a weird run of years. I was also a singer in a rock band during that period really? of time. But oh that God. was when, when you... Um, When you wrote that email, you were like, uh, I'm going to ask you some questions about your time at Harvard and MIT, I was like, well, be careful, because (laughs) there were certain periods of time where I was sleeping very little, so I'm not sure how much I remember, (laughs) because trying to stuff all of that on top of a MIT curriculum turned out to be, um, I, I definitely made some poor choices with respect to lifestyle, so. Um, we'll I, have to I do a say...
0: second podcast to, to yeah those sort of things. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your current work and you've written this book. I want oh, to talk yeah. about it. I don't want to distract them out too much, but believe me, we could also do another hour or two. Well, the... we'll
1: get back. We'll get back to it. Yes. Um, I think it does actually factor into the neurohacking though in a weird way, which is that I think um, you know. It's easy to just think about these types of questions about mental performance and optimization from either a purely neuroscience standpoint or a purely sort of self-help standpoint. But when you look across different avenues of human expression, and that could be connecting with other people and representing other people as I was trying to do as class president or uh, trying to hit the, the top of your sport um, as I was in, in my sport. Um, or at least get the most that I could out of that, or if it's you know, hitting some kind of musical note or <laughs> musical experience for, for yourself, for your bandmates and for the audience, all of those things actually come back to uh, trying to get yourself into flow and trying to get yourself into sort of whatever your version of a peak mental performance is. And it almost doesn't matter what you're doing because you bring your brain wherever you go. So whatever you're struggling with, it's going to show up in meetings. It's going to show up in your, your family interactions. It's going to show up. If you're a singer in a band, it's going to show up in how you sing a song. It's going to show up everywhere. So really it doesn't matter what you're doing. You really need to take responsibility and, um, you know, appreciate and, and look at and, um, say, where am I right now and where do I really want to be and how can I take, um, you know, targeted action. And I think that that's what neurohacking can allow um, you to do, kind of no matter who you are or what you're doing.
0: I have two more questions for you one specific okay. one that you're going to hate, and then one uh, deeper one, which I'm excited to hear what you're. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm
1: worried. But no, you can have
0: the same uh, qualms about it. The same disclaimer applies as the previous one. Oh, I see. One. Okay. Uh, which is, uh, uh, I'm curious to know is uh, so, which neurohack? were you skeptical about at the outset that actually had a more significant positive impact than you might have appreciated?
1: Oh, that's a really good
0: interesting question.
1: Um, what was I really skeptical about? Yeah. Um, so as a scientist, I always thought of placebo as sort of this annoyance. Um, you would have to factor it in whenever you were designing an experiment. And then I came across this, um, set of research. Well, so, this was when I was in grad school at Harvard. The, uh, Ted Kapczyk is the head of the Center uh, for Placebo Studies at Harvard and um, he has a fascinating background. He's trained both as a, a Chinese um, medicine doctor and also in kind of Western um, scientific practice. And he's a, now a professor, I think he's affiliated with the medical school as well as the uh, science. So he looks quantitatively at how large of an effect size you actually get from placebo and they look at it as an intervention. So, so I have a chapter called placebo on purpose. And the idea is that you can really use placebo as an intervention. It's not just this annoying thing that you have to factor in when you're running a study. So I didn't think that placebo would be as large as it actually was. And when I, when I dug into the research more Um, the, the power of that mind body connection and its ability to show up in all sorts of different areas was a lot, uh, stronger than I expected. So that was, that was probably a surprise. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting, especially coming from a scientific background. You talk about the placebo effect as a bug, not a feature. Exactly. Saying, oh, yeah. But actually, if you think about it in a different framing, it's actually the best feature of it all of, of all. Because right. Exactly. But you can do what is objectively speaking nothing, though, of course, it's not the, the story. But like, you know, right. in, in the placebo sense. And, it, and it's differ. not nothing. That's the yeah, thing. It, is it makes they a study. Huge difference. And it works really what well. You yeah. you want than that? Uh, I love That's that's a good answer to that yeah and it
1: was also funny because it kept showing up in various interventions that i like i was looking at brain games and um, i'd been on the research team at lumosity and one of the things that mm. often gets asked is are these things that are supposedly working even when in studies they show that they work is it just placebo um same thing happened with, ne- with neurofeedback too all of these things that shows up as a question and i was like well this keeps showing up is it actually like a thing unto itself and then that was when i came across ted kapschuk's work and i was like oh okay this is actually pretty cool so, yeah,
0: very. Yeah, bug.
1: I think bug versus feature is exactly the right way to think about it.
0: Um. Okay. And then, so uh, I, this is a question that I'm hoping there'll be both a practical and even a philosophical sort of uh, answer for. But it's sure. how do you how do you measure the benefit of a cost neuroco- and a, a neuro hack, and how do you measure the cost of it? So I'm I'm kind mm-hmm. of imagining. Uh, the benefit thing is, is obvious. You want to see some sort of positive thing. The, the cost part of it maybe is not as obvious and maybe goes so far as to say like, oh, by trying to, um, you know, put myself in a position to be constantly doing X, maybe that brings me down uh, and, and like, you know, help like I, I don't forget. Uh, I I don't I'm not as present in the moment or maybe there's an opportunity cost like well I'm screwing around trying to make this work if I had just done the old-fashioned way and you know like so so take me through the way you think about all that both in terms like this is concretely what I measure for cost and benefits and how do I think about what the nature of cost benefit of this process is
1: oh yeah that's a wonderful set of questions so uh so the first one is relatively straightforward to answer the second one is actually kind of harder Um, so the first one is how do you measure um benefit and if your goal is an increase in mental performance then um you i typically rely on neuropsychological um tests and what i mean by that is if you've ever um seen an iq test or a brain game um, or those kinds of exercises those are all uh, sort of co-opted from an overall research literature and clinical literature that's called neuropsychology. Um, and it's, it, it's um, based on the idea that you can measure mental performance uh, quickly um, in, with these little tests. Um, the, now that's complicated because a lot of those tests are designed for one-time use. So you have to use different versions that are intended for repeat use. Um, so anyway, that, that's, so you look at improvement on neuropsychological tests. You look at improvement on validated self-assessments. You also can look at biological, um, changes, which is the one that I think is much more interesting because that's a little more objective. So you can look at changes in brainwave pattern. You can look at changes in, um, heart rate variability. Um, uh, you can look at changes in performance in school, if that's what you're trying to optimize for, um, it really depends what your goal is. If you're, so when I think about, um, I've actually about to begin a new experiment on myself. So, um, when I think about the kinds of outcome measures that I'm looking for right now, I look for real world measures, um, in terms of, For for me, I'm looking at productivity. So, how is my say to do ratio (laughs) improving? So, between what I say I'm going to do in any given week and what I actually end up doing, Um, and then I look at finer grain measures. So, how what does my performance look like on um, a self assessment that relates to these things? Sorry to
0: interject. Can you uh, just say just a wee bit about how you um, organize your say and do? If this was a Tim Ferriss interview, we'd talk for the next hour and a half about how you organize your your to do list and everything and (laughs) I I don't, I don't want to force you to go through, 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 through I would love to, I would love to know just the broad strokes of how you organize that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, actually, so my husband and I have been working on this app, um, that we may release to other people at some point, but, uh, it's, we call it fire or my husband named it fire Pomo. Um, and it's kind of this Frankenstein's monster of a few different techniques. So there's this, the Pomodoro method, which is, um, a lot of people may be familiar with it's you, you, say where you're doing it given time frame. And then you have like, depends on which version of it, 15 to 25 minutes to do it. You have a timer, a timer goes off at the end. You say whether or not you did it and you're trying to train yourself to really focus during that period of time. So the, um, the app that we use is a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly uh, kind of to-do list. But for each item, there is an associated timer. Um, and then there's also a score at the bottom of each day. That's a self-score. On where how productive you thought you were, um, I augment that with a number of my own measures that have to do with my level of focus, so that I track on a pretty fine grain level, often even at in five minute increments, of what was my focus level. I was one distracted, two um, kind of okay focus, three um, sort of medium, and then uh, four would be in flow. So I'm trying to optimize my day and my activities so that I spend as much time in flow as possible. Um, Yeah, so the the say to do thing is a really long conversation, but I use a combination of basically um, uh, web tools and kind of various philosophies that have all been stuck onto this methodology that is not supposed to take very long to update each day.
0: So that that gives a little bit of the insight into the practical measurements of how you're measuring your own progress and, and the success of your experimentations.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you can do, I mean, you can even do the, the objective biological tests, um, and tracking. If you have a smartwatch, I use an Apple watch, um, for the heart rate measures, heart, heart rate variability in particular, um, for EEG, I have this over here. I can just show you. Um, I've got the, this is, the, Oh, my background is it eats <laughs> it. Yay for computer vision. Sure. <laughs> it's half of a muse headset that you're able to see right now. So you can look at your brainwaves, um, using a research app that's for, great. for that. Uh, and I can kind of track and see how that's changing also.
0: Right. So that's the, that's the practical aspect. Mm-hmm. Is there, how do you, how do you contextualize yeah. in the sort of like larger philosophical picture of, of what that does for, I guess, a life more generally. What would, I, my, my question is what would Viktor Frankl, Make of make of all this, you know, or maybe mm-hmm. not that directly, but you know, uh, what what? Yeah, tell me tell me about how you start to think about that side of things.
1: Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. Um, I, I'm not 100 sure what Viktor Frankl would say, but I think Eric From, who's the the Art of Loving guy, um, would probably say that. Uh, it, so he talks about different ways to love, what is love, and how does a person pursue these various things. And for me, I think what I'm attempting to do with all this tracking and all this optimizing and all the rest of it is um, to live a life where I'm more fully present and I can do whatever it is that I want to do, um, I can do it with a better version of myself. And so I think that just, that means that, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a weird answer to your question. It's, it's less of a what answer and more of a how answer um, so it ends up being agnostic as to goal um, because it just says that you're going to magnify and improve um, whatever it is that you end up tackling uh, in life. And so for me, that process has actually sort of become its own goal because I want to I, I want to open up that. Opportunity to more people, so the 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 why, and the how, and the what all end up being becoming the same thing for me. But not everyone's goal in life is to turn everyone else into a neurohacker, right? <laughs> so so for me, the benefit of running experiments on myself and self tracking and doing all of this is so that I can um, show up better myself, but I can also help other people do that too. For you or for someone else, the benefit of neurohacking might be that if your purpose in life is to, um, and I unfortunately don't know enough about you, I'm sorry, um, but is to perhaps produce better research um, in your graduate program or to, that's probably very narrow. (laughs) It's not probably like your entire life goal, but is perhaps to pursue some some core um, question that you have about uh, how people socialize um, or how we work in groups. Um, And if you show up, with a better version of your mind to those tasks, then you will do your job on earth as a human. Like your raison d'etre will be better fulfilled because you'll be like Cody 2.0. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely uh, I definitely resonate with all that for sure. I'm not exactly the, sure about the specific life goals that you ascribed to me, but in the general- Yeah, the general get, tell,
1: like it. help me out, man. I, I don't know enough about your background to have, have done that properly. Well, if you were to pick, now I'm going to put the, the um, spotlight on you. If you were to pick a core question that you want to have answered um, in the next five years, what would it be?
0: Core question. Um, the, the thing that has always been at the center of my interest, both in terms of writing and these you know, little podcast conversations and uh, what I'm interested in academically, is yeah. the question of how we go about understanding people who are different from ourselves, mm-hmm. um, and in a way, this this kind of is is not unsympathetic to the same sort of things that uh, we were talking about with your radical thesis that like <laughs> you really have to have this deep appreciation for how different individuals uh, are, uh, not only with other individuals under other individuals, but intra-individually across yes, time exactly. That's another big thing that you bring up is it's not just, oh, here's person A, person B. Uh, yeah. And anyway, I, I'm fast. Person A
1: at time A and person A at time B. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Um, yeah. And so that's a really unifying thing that brings together m- what are uh, somewhat multifarious interests interests across um, you know psychology and anthropology and writing and reading and, and talking and, and researching and sciencing. Um, is is yeah? What's what what brings a person through those different stages? How do you talk to them about the experience they've had? How they make sense to them, and where they led to to where they are now? And um, uh, also, uh, uh, yeah, like how do we how do we do that for for other people, and particularly people who come from different social backgrounds and, mm-hmm. and everything like that? That's where a lot of the social psychology stuff comes in. And one of the so that's kind of at a at a broad philosophical. This is the thing that I think unifies all of the random stuff that I I do. Um, and then at a at a more direct level, the thing I'm really interested in right now is the the intersection of psychology and travel. And, sure, so I and think travel, I, yeah. So psychology, obviously, we know it, we love it. It's uh, got the opportunity to, you know, make make our lives better in, in myriad ways. We talk about love, we talk about happiness, we talk about work and everything. But consistently, sure. when you ask people, like, you know, what are the most meaningful experiences of your life, a lot of people will say, you know, travel and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But in the same way that you're talking about with, you know, well, there's not really anyone who's spoken to this really precise intersection of what the research says and self-experimentation, you know, like all, all the stuff that you were describing. There's not really anyone who's sat down in uh, a, a really purposeful way and said, well, what can we, uh, in both directions, A, what can travel really tell us about our personality, our culture, our, um, uh, our identity, all these things? How, what mm-hmm. does that actually look like? And then B, what does psychological research tell us about how to have more meaningful experiences when we're abroad or even when we're experiencing a new part of the town we live in and that sort of stuff? And so it's at this intersection of of how we make sense of ourselves, those around us, when we go to a place that we're unfamiliar with, uh, when we put ourselves out of the context, which uh, we're, we're indigenous to and all that sort of stuff. Uh, those yeah. are those are the, the questions in the near future that I'm hoping to address through um, more of my writing, uh, um, and maybe a book or two, that sort of thing along those lines.
1: Well I would I would challenge you to um, to go after that and to possibly even frame travel as an intervention. Um, so I'm curious if you if this line of reasoning intrigues you, what if you did the following? What if you did something like, you could gather a group of people. Perhaps you're recruiting participants for this. Perhaps you just start with yourself. You track a set of uh, correlates or outcomes that you're curious about. Could be biological, could be psychological. Um, And you do this very consistently um, day over day before, so to sort of set your baseline, during uh, the course of the travel, and then after to understand what the... um, the sort of washout effects of that travel were. And then you wait a little while and then you see the, um, you you retest yourself on those various axes. And then you see if there was a lasting effect of the intervention that was travel um, across all these different metrics. And I think that would be absolutely fascinating um, because you would show that, tr- that transition as a person. Um, and there's a different aspect of travel, which is as you meet different people and you come across different ways of living and being, um, how different are those things that you end up finding? Um, There's a a woman, Tara Thakarajan, who runs Sapien Labs. And I mentioned her very, very briefly in the book. But she's done such cool work on neurological diversity across the world. And she looks at EEG specifically. Um, And the the problem that she's targeting is that if you look certainly in neuroscience research, but I think this is probably true in social and behavioral research more generally. Um, the, the data is way overrepresented um, in uh, America, like American and European countries, and also um, this is super specific, but college freshmen in psychology. So a lot of our understanding, <laughs> but it's true. Like really, literally, if you look numerically at the actual participants in all of these different studies, it is just that one very specific subset of the population. So if you want to look at more diversity of you know, different ages of people, different races of people, different socioeconomic groups, different uh, geographic um, walks of life as well, um, you need to go and engage with those other people. So what um, Tara's group has actually done is she has these um, kits that she sends out that, that have an EEG in them, that have other... Um, Core tools that you would need and she has research groups all over the world. Um, She's originally from India. So she has groups there. She's got uh, people in South South America as well um, and really all over. And so she's Building this much more rich and nuanced picture of what it means to be a human. And so I almost feel like you should team up with her in some way to try to take both of those parts of the of the question apart not just how do you as an individual change with the intervention that is travel but also how um how does how, how is the experience of living in any of these various different places um different and how does it affect I, I mean i'd be interested in the brain question but as a um it sounds like you're more interested in the behavioral aspects um so then yeah that would be the question to come out Absolutely. Anyway, I hope uh, neurohacking helps you with that.
0: No, let, <laughs> let me say. Yeah. Let me say. First of all, that lab sounds amazing. I don't, I'm not familiar with her work. And I'm, I'm gonna have to check it out. For sure. Yeah, she's super cool. But no, if you did hypothetically, if you did challenge me to consider uh, to consider all that uh, doing it my own, the first thing I'd say is that sounds like a great idea. Um, <laughs> Good. Awesome. The second thing I'd say is that's probably not me. It's probably not the way I, as a uh, a, a thinker and a, and a would-be writer and that sort of stuff would would approach something. Uh, hmm. That would be the second thing that I that I would say to it, is it's just not my approach to things, um, huh. which but, I think is. But why? Why isn't this your whole thing? Is that uh, it, you're everyone's uh, different and, and that sort of stuff? We can go into we can go into why <laughs> I think.
1: Well, this uh, is more interesting. We a, should spend more time on this.
0: That sort <laughs> of stuff. Um, uh, and I've got I've got plenty. I've got like it's an, an egregious amount mm-hmm. of, of of theories uh about why this would be the case um but okay. let me say the third thing uh, that i want to say here which <laughs> to be is fair that- i
1: also didn't answer your earlier question about what are the negative potential side effects of of doing neuro hacking um so that's probably for another time
0: absolutely i will <laughs> say though that uh uh in the spirit of self-experimentation and yeah. constantly trying to improve oneself i'm going to nonetheless consider uh, your 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 here in more your your idea here in more detail than I would intuitively give it with uh you know response like oh I'm not gonna do that. Um, and <laughs> well
1: hooray I'm glad you're I'm glad you're, you're so you're I look forward to,
0: to it, 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 <laughs> contemplating that uh, over over however long it occurs to me to do so and it's a very cool idea and I look forward to exploring it. Um, awesome
1: well I look forward to whatever you find out. <laughs>
0: Uh, but no, the there's a short answer to why I wouldn't do that, and it's that I'm fundamentally just a shitty scientist. Uh, <laughs> and that says the
1: graduate student, right? And I that's mean, exactly
0: the reason that uh, I do uh, what I do, why why I pursued a, a a Ph.D. thing. I think I think there's maybe kind of like um, a little bit of a, an, an inverse, a complimentary sort of thing here happening between you and me, which is that you at your core are in a really like important way, a great scientist. You have the natural inclination towards it. Uh, and I sincerely, fundamentally palpably do not. And, uh, So in order <laughs> for you, a little unfair to
1: yourself, in, to be honest. In order I mean, for I you really to think... do
0: what you need to do well, you <laughs> didn't need uh, you know, to like get further into the scientific thing. You literally are have a natural propensity enough to it. You needed other things to help build out your thing. That is the thing that at least I chose to build out in this way to to complement what I naturally uh bring to people, how I naturally approach Interesting. It. Interesting. Um so yeah. I don't say it's well, dead. I, I think I, that's I think that's a
1: longer I think that's a longer conversation. There's about, no, There's no about, doubt about, about about growth mindset and about uh, nature versus nurture and curiosity. No, I, think, I
0: think if you're going to take me to task hmm. on, on growth mindset, uh, I think <laughs> you're uh, you you are you would be discounting uh, the the level at which I've thought about this and the way that I'm okay. actually interpreting it myself. Uh, fair so I, I I would say that uh, no, it's not it's not going to be uh, it wouldn't be that easy to to uh, dissuade me or to, to I, there, there's actually much more going on here. But, right, uh, fair enough. Sounds but like a as you know, as you noted, it would take it'd be much longer. Anyway, uh, Elizabeth, I've taken up enough of your time. It's been a super fun conversation. It has been great. Uh, congratulations on writing an excellent book.
1: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, and I look forward to hearing about your neurohacking adventures.
0: That was my conversation with Elizabeth Ricker. You can check out her new book, Smarter Tomorrow. It is available everywhere. And if you want to connect with her, you can do so on Twitter at ELI Ricker. And if you want to connect with me, definitely check out my Substack newsletter, CodyCommerce.substack.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.